John chapter 12, verse 12 reads, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was so that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Preaching on a um, day that the church has set aside with a particular theme is always both easier and also more difficult. Um, the, the challenge of picking out a text and a theme is not really there. It's not as, uh, it's not as time consuming to pour over the text and try to understand what, uh, what needs to be said and what the word is trying to communicate. But it's also challenging at the same time because the resources that you look at all say the same thing over and over again. There's a plethora of sermons to listen to, to get ideas and to, to check your work, uh, to make sure you're not out on some branch, um, but they all tend to sound the same. And so I wanted to approach this text a little bit differently today. Um, it's always a little bit risky to go out and be different you know, when it comes to theology and the scriptures, but I think I'm on pretty solid ground here. And so I wanted to take a look. One thing that I found is um, most of the time when a Palm Sunday sermon is preached, it's out of one of the synoptic gospels. Thinking back in my Christian life, um, when I think about the sermons I've heard, it's not typically out of John when I come to Palm Sunday. And I'm not entirely sure why that is. Um, the account here is not drastically different. It's not more difficult. Uh, the Greek is actually much easier in John than it is in others. So I'm not sure why it seems like uh, we gravitate towards um, Matthew, Mark, or Luke for this. But there are a few things in the Gospel of John here that I think help us understand the context of uh, what's happening in Palm Sunday a little bit more clearly than we might when we look at some of the others. So just for some uh, introduction and some context, the church has... Um, over the years had different perspectives, the church corporately, not just this church, um, has had different understandings of when it's appropriate to set aside time and how we set aside time. So in, in the early church, uh, it was common for them to set aside uh, the martyrdom days of martyrs. And that was a good and fine thing to do as a way to honor the dead. It was a way to testify to their sacrifice. But over time, those, those days which were essentially brief commemorations. Maybe you'd go visit a grave. It's not all that different than we might react uh, when we celebrate the anniversary or birthday of a loved one who has died. We might go visit their grave. We might celebrate by eating their favorite food or something along those lines. But over time throughout the church, those, those commemoration days became feast days. And those feast days became holy days. And those saints that we were honoring to testify to God's glory suddenly became the people that the Catholic church was praying to. And so I want to just start this message today by acknowledging that there is a danger in set aside, setting aside particular days. We have to be very careful. 
one of the things that occurred in the Reformation was people like John Calvin and John Knox, they recognized this danger within the church, right? The, holy, the, the Roman Catholic Church calls them holy days of obligation, where if you don't go to Mass on those days, Christmas, Easter, Palm Sunday, if you don't go to Mass on those days, you actually can leave a state of grace and risk losing your salvation. So it became this unbearable law, this unbearable burden on the people who often couldn't get to church on those days. If you live in a, a country where the church is not, um, is not dominant, or if you live in a country where you're persecuted, those days were often targeted by people to attack Christians because they knew where they would be. And so in the Reformation, one of the things that happened was people like Calvin and John Knox, not so much Luther, but the people on the Reformation, the Reformed side of things, they started to recognize that these holy days were actually dangerous. And so they tried to return to what the Bible seems to teach, which is to say that no one day is more holy than another apart from the Lord's day. Honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now, we, we had a, a message a while ago where we talked about why, how and why and when the Sabbath changed from the Jewish Sabbath on the seventh day to the Christian Sabbath, or the Jewish Sabbath on the, yeah, the seventh day to the Christian Sabbath on the first day of the week. But nevertheless, the Sabbath is the day that the Bible marks out as holy. But all of that said, even among the reformers who recognized this danger, they also still recognized that it was helpful and it was illustrative and it, was, it made sense for the church to identify certain times of year and to associate certain events with certain times of year. So I say that just to say in a long-winded form that this is the day that we celebrate the, the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. So it's a week before uh, Easter, which is... There's a crazy weird calculation that the early church figured out of how to determine when Easter is, but you just count back seven days and we're in Palm Sunday. And we call this the triumphal entry, which is a great, it's a great name for it. Um, that's not uh, necessarily a biblical term, although there are some Old Testament allusions that we will potentially look at today that talk about the Messiah's triumphal entry, that he enters in triumph. Um, but we call it this because of the nature of the entry the nature of how Christ come in, the nature of how the crowds reacted to him, the nature of how his enemies reacted to it, what they understood it to be meaning. And so the main thing that we see in this is that the crowds identified Jesus as the Messiah. He's not just, they're not just celebrating someone who comes in and can make a bunch of food for them or who healed the sick. Those are all parts of his messianic identity, but they're specifically calling him the King of Israel, the son of David, the Messiah. This isn't a general celebration. This is the crowds rightfully recognizing and celebrating that the long-awaited anointed one of the Lord who will throw off the bonds of death and, and sin has finally arrived. But I think we also miss the fact in that because of the way we, we look at this text, because of the sermons that are often preached on Palm Sunday, because of the passion plays or movies that we may have seen, we often miss the fact that this coming into Jerusalem accompanied by this massive crowd of people, and we'll talk about how massive it was in a second, accompanied by this massive crowd of people celebrating and shouting and, and putting down palm branches and throwing down their coats, we miss the fact sometimes that this was also a coming in judgment. And the victory of a king always comes with the defeat of his enemies. The victory of the king always comes with the defeat of his enemies. There is no victory in combat without somebody taking a hit. 
without somebody losing the fight. And that's something we have to look at in this because there is a tendency in the evangelical church to look at Jesus as nothing but meek and mild. We see pictures that probably should never have been drawn of Jesus with his hair pulled back behind his ears and he's got a light behind him and he's got nice bright blue eyes, which is totally unrealistic for a first century Jew. We miss the fact that he is also a conquering warrior who destroys his enemies. It's not the Jesus we like to think about, but it's actually a Jesus that should give us enormous amounts of comfort. Question 26 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is uh, a question and answer tool used to teach children, um, which should humble us all a little bit if we read it and we see how in-depth some of these answers are. Uh, it was used by parents to teach children. So this is fresh on my mind as a tool as, as I begin to think about how to raise August up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And question 26 reads, how does Christ execute the office of a king? And the answer that the Westminster divines give is Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. I'm going to read that again. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. I don't have the reference written down because it just came to mind, but there's this account in the book of Joshua. I think it's the Gibeonites. Joshua, the Gibeonites come and they make this sort of treaty with the Israelites on false pretenses. And uh, because of this treaty, Joshua and the elders of Israel refuse to wipe them out because they've made this treaty with them. And Joshua as not the king, but as the ruler, the judge, the leader, whatever we want to call him of Israel at the time, he determines that he will protect these people. And so the first thing he does is he goes to them and he sort of confronts them. He brings his army with him, right? But he confronts them and he says, why did you do this? And then he basically says, nevertheless, we will rescue you anyways. The other, the other Canaanites in the area were seeking to destroy them because they had made this treaty and he rescues them anyways. So he subdues them to himself. He, he goes to them in force and he subdues them to himself and he takes them into the people of Israel as a sort of attachment to the people of Israel. And then he rules them and he defends them. He gives them a task. He says, you will be the water bearers and wood choppers of our nation. It's not quite slavery, but he basically says, this is what your people will do. This is for deceiving us. This is part of your covenant now you will be the woodchoppers. He rules them and he defends them. And then last of all, Joshua in the Old Testament restrains and conquers his enemies. The Canaanites were his enemies, but they were also now the enemies of the Gibeonites. So that's a good illustration of what we're talking about. And of course, Joshua points forward to Jesus as the, the good and better Joshua. But I want us to think a little bit about our lives and how Christ subdues us how he defends us and explicitly how he does and will conquer our shared enemies. So I want to talk a little bit about the crowds and, and how they demonstrate that they believe Christ is the Messiah. And we have to talk a little bit about the crowd itself first. So I think because we've probably all seen a passion play or an Easter pageant, or we've watched 
a movie that that contains this scene we tend to think of the trial triumphal entry as this sort of like when you go to a football game and there's like the cheerleaders line up along the row and all the team comes running in and there's maybe, you know, there's maybe like 15 or 20 cheerleaders and there's, there's like the officials and people are all along there, but it's a relatively small group of people. This is not the way that we should think about this. And the text is pretty clear about this. So it says in verse 12, it says the next day, the large crowd had come that had come to the feast. So this isn't necessarily, although these people were part of the group, this isn't necessarily the people who followed him in from the Mount of Olives, the people who came with him from Bethany. Those are part of the crowd, but this is the pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover. Not all of them, but a large crowd of them. The Greek could literally be translated as many crowds. So that's a way that the, the, the author here, that John is trying to communicate to us. This isn't just a crowd. Whatever you think a crowd is, it's many of those. So rather than think of the tunnel that people run through when they come onto the football field or some sort of similar procession, it's probably more likely that we would think of the stadium itself. The, the fans that are cheering as the team takes the field. I'm a big fan of soccer or European football, whatever you want to call it. And soccer is um, well known for these chants that happen. And they're almost, they're almost like combat chants. They're almost like, uh, like warrior songs. And when it gets going, it's this clamor. And, and I don't know if you've ever been to a, a stadium game where it gets out of sync and all of a sudden it's just noise. It's just loud. It's intimidating. It's just noise. That's more like what this is. Because we have trained our minds to think in terms of movies and images that we've seen, which just as a side note is a reason we should be very careful with pageants and drama. Because if we're not careful, we tend to let what we've seen some sort of director or painter tell us override what the Bible actually seems to be saying. The word um, that is translated here as crying out, it's literally shrieking. It's a loud clamor. It's that noise that you have when everyone is talking turned up to a million. Josephus, who we reference periodically, is a first century Jewish historian. Now, he was writing from a particular perspective. He was a Jewish historian who was recording the war uh, the, the Jewish war, which the Romans came in and finally defeated the, the Jews and expelled them from Jerusalem entirely in AD 70, somewhere in there. So he has, a, he has a vested interest in exaggerating the numbers a little bit, either to make the Romans look good, which is what he was trying, probably trying to do since he was paid by the Romans, but also to make the Romans look a little bit cruel by how, how many Jews they killed. But he records that the population of Jerusalem during Passover could swell to over 2 million. So if we're talking about even a small portion of the people who are gathered together to welcome the Messiah, we could be talking about hundreds of thousands of people who are all chanting and shouting and, and celebrating. It's quite a, quite a chaotic scene. We also sometimes think that these are people who may have just gotten sort of swept up into the excitement. And there were probably some of those people but if you look at, we're not going to turn there, but if you look to Luke's version of this account, he says that the crowd, he calls the crowd his disciples. So most of these people 
or a, a large portion of these people were people who, even before the triumphal entry, had acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah. They were followers of Jesus Christ. And what we see is not, um, not this picture of Jesus coming into a city where there's already a celebration going, but the language that's used of what the crowd does is classic language of a military victory. So it says uh, in verse, where is it? Verse 13, it says, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. Now that seems like a sort of throwaway line. They went out to meet him. But in ancient times, when, when you think of um, Julius Caesar returning to Rome, when he comes back as the first Caesar, the first emperor, what happens is the military that was still in Rome, the people of Rome, they all empty out of the city to meet the emperor in, uh, in the field. And then the emperor comes to the front of that group and he, he walks into the city and everybody follows behind him in procession. It's the ceremony to go out and greet the conquering king, the victorious warrior, and usher them back into the city. In, in Julius Caesar's instance, and there's probably some overtones of this too, it was a way for the city to say, we welcome you. Because when Julius Caesar left Rome, he wasn't the emperor of Rome. He went out and he killed other Romans, other Roman military leaders. And so when they go out into the streets, they go out into the fields and they welcome him and bring him back. They're accepting him as their leader. It's very similar to what's going on here in, in Jerusalem. The crowds going out to the Lord, coming back with the Lord to acknowledge that he is their Lord, not just the Lord, not just the Messiah, but he is their Messiah. We see similar, um, similar kinds of dynamics in various points in the Bible. In 1 Samuel 18, 6, we see uh, Saul and David are coming back from the victory from the battlefield and all the women of the city go out and Saul gets really ticked off because they come up with this war chant. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. Right? It really gets stuck in Saul's ear, but it's the same thing. Saul's coming back from a victory with the Philistines. He's got his right-hand man, David, with him. And they all come out to greet him and bring him back into the city. And they sing and they chant and they yell and they, they put things on the ground in front of him. This is a very classic kind of um, ancient victory celebration. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to go to uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 2.14 real quick. 14 through 17 says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance of death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? So this is a reference to, again, that same ceremony. A lot of times what they would do is you would, have, you would have warriors coming back from the field. Not to be too crass, but there weren't showers out in the field. So there was stench. They were covered in blood. They had open wounds, rotting wounds. So what they would do when the warriors came back is they would throw flowers out onto the, out onto the ground in front of them. So as they marched through, they would crush up those flowers, would send this fragrance up into the air, partially to cover the smell, the fragrance of death to those who are perishing, right? There were also captives that were being brought back, but mostly a celebration. 
to make the air smell delightful. This is the same kind of dynamic that's going on in, in the triumphal entry passages in all of them. The crowds are undergoing this very common celebration. So by their actions, and then as we'll see by their words, they very clearly are not welcoming meek and mild Jesus, who's just come to make everybody feel nice. They're welcoming the Messiah, who they're anticipating both has crushed his enemies already, but will continue to crush his enemies. And in the minds of the crowd, they probably were anticipating a military coup. They were probably anticipating Christ coming in and taking out the Romans, and probably taking out the Pharisees and the Sadducees while he was at it. That's not what happened, but that's what they were clearly expecting. I'm going to reference real quick here 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, because I think just as a side note, um, we often sometimes get some bad impressions of the end times, um, and I don't want to make too strong of a statement on this, but we have this sort of left behind uh, Tim LaHaye, Jerry Jenkins understanding of the rapture. And I just wanted to make a quick, quick reference here that I think helps to at the very least shape and our understanding of what might be going on with, with what we call the rapture. Uh, this is from 1 Thessalonians 4, chapter, uh, verse 16. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will raise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The rapture, however we think of it, whether it's an actual physical gathering up in the air, whether we somehow disappear like, like the Left Behind series says and we, we go to be with Christ, it's not some secret thing. It's this same dynamic. It's the final victory of the Lord and he comes to prepare for the final battle and his people rush up to meet him. It, it's, it's not even so much here, although we would acknowledge this theologically that it's the Lord doing it. But the text here says, we will be caught up together with him to meet him in the air. So we're the ones that are meeting him. It's almost as though we're so excited to see our Lord that we learn how to fly. So we have to, we have to frame that. That's not the point of the sermon. I don't want to get bogged down in it, but I thought it was a good opportunity to sort of touch on that. The other element that we see about how the crowds are identifying him as Messiah is they, they cry out to him. This isn't an orderly hymn sing. It's not singing Hosanna, Hosanna, you are the one who saved. You know, it's not, it's not our, our weekly choruses. It's a, it's a chant. It's a riotous chant. It's chaotic. And not everybody is saying the same thing. What this portion of the text in John t tells us they cry out is a portion of Psalm 118. We know that it's not just this portion of Psalm 118, though. It's not that they were just crying this out because if we look at um, the rest of uh, the gospels, when they record this, they record slightly different versions of what people are saying. So the most likely way to sort of synthesize that is to say different people were crying out different parts of the Psalm, right? There weren't versions the same way we think of it, but it'd be similar to if I said, all right, everybody read Psalm 118 out loud from your Bible. It would be chaotic because everybody's got a different version. The wording is a little different, but also, some Bibles don't have verse numbers. Like if you had a copy of the message, a lot of those don't have any verse numbers. So you might not even know where exactly we're reading. That's a similar dynamics going on here. It's likely that the intended reference by the gospel writers here is for us to focus on a portion of the portion of Psalm 118, but to have in mind the entire Psalm or at least the entire context. 
I'm going to run out of time if I go as in-depth on this as I would love to. Um, but a couple of conclusions here that I think we can draw from this. Just flip over to Psalm 118 real quick. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, we read a good portion of this for our meditation. And um, a couple things to focus on that I think helps to set up where I really want to camp out. In verses 10 through 13, it says, All the nations surround me in the name of the Lord. I cut them off. This is, uh, this is likely a psalm written by David. It's a, a triumph psalm. It's a praise psalm to God for a military victory. They surrounded me. They surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees, and they went out like fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Right? Clearly, he's talking about a victory. He's clearly talking about how he cut them off. He defeated them in battle. Cut off is a very specific term in the Bible. It usually means killed. When someone is cut off from his people Israel because they refuse to be circumcised, or uh, uh, the rebellious son is cut off from his, his people, usually it meant because he was stoned to death. Not always, but usually that's what this language means. So we see that even in this psalm, the praise, that, the praise that David is writing and the praise that the people would have been singing is a praise for victory over their enemies. It's not just a praise that the Messiah has come in this sort of abstract way. Then if you look at verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Right? That's a very familiar phrase to us. It was used both by uh, Jesus himself and then in various sermons in Acts, I believe Peter uses this. It's a reference to point out that the sort of high and lofty people, the right people, the people from the right side of the tracks who were running the religious establishment had rejected Jesus. So the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots in a certain sense, the Herodians, the people in the religious establishment, this psalm includes the fact that those people have been rejected and that the cornerstone will crush them. So it's no wonder to us, it shouldn't be a wonder to us that the Pharisees got really worked up over this. It was a war cry. It wasn't just, you know, they kind of come in and they say, make your people be quiet, Jesus. Do you hear what they're saying? It's, they weren't asking if Jesus was hard of hearing. They were saying, do you understand the implications of what these people are saying? If you keep this up, the Romans are going to kill us all, is, is the force behind that. But then in the background, there's also, who do these people think they are? How dare they quote that psalm when they know full well that Jesus intends that against us. So this is establishing that the people here are self-consciously recognizing Jesus as Messiah. They're self-consciously saying he is the victorious warrior and his enemies will be defeated. That's central to everything we have to say. If you get nothing else today, that's the main point. I'm going to touch briefly on Zechariah, but we're not going to go there. There's a number of, um, when you look at the commentaries and the sermons, there's a number of um, interpretive lines of thought that understand the reason he's on a cult to essentially mean that he's not a warrior. I think that you can get there. I understand it. There's talk about peace in the book of Zechariah. But Zechariah, immediately before and after this, as we read earlier, immediately before and after this is talking about war and judgment. So in verse nine, it says he has salvation in him. The, the, the coming king who rides on a colt has salvation in him. In the Hebrew mindset, that phrasing would have basically meant he has saved us. He's provided salvation for us. In verse 11, we see the really classic covenant language. 
says, because of the blood of my covenant, right? We're in the, we're talking about Christ entering in around Passover time. We know what happens in the last supper. We know the language he uses. We know that that's the same language that, um, that Moses used when he instituted the Sinaitic covenant. This all moves towards verse 13 and 14, where it says, for I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then verse 14 says, then the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the South. So when we think about Christ sitting on the colt, yes, he's not coming in at war. The king doesn't come back on his war horse. The king comes back on something else, a donkey. It's, it's making allusions to David coming back into Jerusalem after he defe- defeats Absalom. All of those are legitimate, but it's not in the context of total permanent peace. He's not coming in to say, I have no remaining enemies. He's coming in basically saying, my enemies can't stop me. David still had enemies. We know that David still had people immediately after the, the war with Absalom who were trying to get him. So it wasn't as though when he came in on a, a donkey, he was saying, yep, everything's fine. I also just think it's interesting how we see in, in Zechariah and we also see it in uh, the Psalm that we read that there's sacrificial language. We don't have time to go there. It would be such an interesting thread to pull on, but the, the coming Messiah comes victoriously in the presence of sacrifices. We know that our, our Lord comes victoriously precisely as a sacrifice. There's that reversal of, uh, reversal of expectations there. So I want to turn, uh, I want to look at um, two other triumphal entries. We'll spend a little bit more time on this first one. So turn over to, um, to Exodus 12. And while you get there, I want to just read something out of Luke. Luke uh, chapter 9, 28 through 31. This is the uh, transfiguration or Luke's account of it. It says, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Does anyone remember, I'm sure we've talked about, does anyone remember what the Greek word that sits under the word departure is? The word is Exodus. Jesus is coming to the Mount of Transfiguration and Moses and Elijah appear and talk to him about his Exodus. And then it says, spoke of his Exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So we we should flash, uh, flash forward immediately to the triumphal entry. The exodus of Jesus begins when he enters Jerusalem. This should naturally lead us back to the exodus of the Old Testament. So in Exodus 12, I'm going to jump around a little bit in verse 12. Um, So I'm going to read verse 1 and then verse 7 and 13 through 13 and then verse 21 through 29. So verse one, the Lord said, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. So I'm, I'm reading that to establish who it is that's talking. It's not some random angel. It's not a human being. It's the Lord. It's Yahweh himself. Jumping down to verse seven. 
Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. So this is, this is the Passover celebration. This is what Jesus is coming to celebrate. This is the feast that the large crowds are present in Jerusalem for. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your, steadfast, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I, right, the Lord, Yahweh, for Yahweh, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Right? So throughout the whole thing, Yahweh is striking Egypt. Yahweh is striking Egypt. It's God who's striking Egypt. The Lord himself is striking Egypt. Then jump down to verse 21. Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select the lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door for his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. If you've got the King James version or a, a translation that sort of follows down that line of translation, it probably says, will not allow the angel of death to destroy you or to enter your house and strike you. This is very clear Trinitarian language. We shouldn't think of this destroyer or this angel of death, although that's a really terrible translation, but it gets at the idea. We shouldn't think of this, this agent of Yahweh who comes to execute the judgment as a created angel. This is the second person of the Trinity. This is God himself. This is Jesus Christ prior to the incarnation that is coming and killing babies of the pharaohs. It's not meek and mild Jesus with a nice haircut. It's not surfer boy Jesus with a baby lamb under his arms. This is the angel of death slaughtering God's enemies. Men, women, and children were killed by Jesus in Egypt. If you have time sometime today, take a look at Exodus chapter three. This is the burning bush narrative. You'll see a similar dynamic. It first says that the Lord called out to Moses from the burning bush. And then it says, or, and then it says God called out to Moses. And then it says the angel of the Lord called out to Moses. So there's this dynamic between, is it Yahweh? Is it the angel of Yahweh? And the church has historically understood that to mean, well, it's Yahweh. And it's the angel of Yahweh. And the angel of Yahweh is Yahweh, right? In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. It's this clear Trinitarian language. This language of the Passover helps us to understand what kind of exodus it was that Jesus was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. Jesus enters Jerusalem with his followers. They're crying out a psalm of victory, of military victory. He's fulfilling a prophecy about military victory. And this victory march starts on Palm Sunday. It continues until Good Friday. And when he ascends the hill of the skull, when he ascends Calvary, when he ascends Golgotha, he stares death in the face and he cries out, let my people go. 
He's not asking. He kicks in the doors of death and he defeats it in the most paradoxical, crazy way we could imagine or couldn't imagine. But this is not Christ is defeated and somehow makes something out of it. This is an intentional act of war. Let my people go. That's our king. That's his triumphal entry in the Passover. I know you're all getting nervous. I'll go through this real quick. I want to touch briefly on one other triumphal entry because this is, this is where our hope lies. So turn with me quickly to Revelation chapter 19. I promise I'll get you out of here close to on time. Revelation chapter 19. So just as I said earlier, history points forward to the coming of Christ. And then many things in the ministry of Christ come point forward to the second coming of Christ. I found this on the web. She found the coming of Christ on the web. Um, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 through 21. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God, right? This is Jesus. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. We can maybe see this as angels or we can see this as his saints rushing to the air to follow him into battle. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron, right? Think of Psalm 2. He dashes the nations to pieces with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the almighty and on his robe and his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is our King. This will be our victory. We live in the already, right? He had his departure. He kicked open the doors of death and it has no claim on us, but he will also have the final victory. Just to disabuse ourselves of any idea that this is some totally symbolic, nice, neat. Jesus is actually really, really gentle all the time, every time, no matter what kind of a thing. Revelation 14 gives, goes a little bit more in detail. Uh, it's, it's more symbolic than this text is. I think this is largely a literal account of what's going to happen. I think that the, the battle of Armageddon is largely going to be a physical battle. But in Revelation 14, it says that the wine press of the Lord, there's this imagery of these angels. One of them is clearly God. It's the son of man riding on a cloud, but then it also talks about another angel. So it's a very confusing text, but it, it talks about how the angel reaps the world of grapes and throws it into the, the wine press of God's wrath. And the wine press is trodden out. So think of a wine press, you put grapes in it, people are stepping in it and the, the juice flows out the sides. And it says that the blood of the wrath of God, the blood created by the people who were trodden in that vat extends for 1600 stadia up to the horse's bridle. So that's 184 miles blood up to about five feet for 184 miles. This is the equivalent of 32 cubic miles of blood. 32 cubic of miles, cubic miles. Just to put that into perspective, Mascoma Lake is 0 0.01 cubic miles of water. So we are talking about 3,200 Mascoma Lakes. This is not, uh, this is not a polite request by Jesus. This is when the patience of the Lord 
has reached its culmination and its end, when he will put all things right, when all of those who are still suffering and still dying will be restored. I don't want to be too political, but when the despots of the world, why do the nations rage? Why do they plot against the Lord? Psalm 2 says, be wise, O kings, O rulers of the nation. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and sweep you away in his wrath. The people of Ukraine, the Christians in Ukraine, this is hope for them. They may have relatives that were shot in the head with their hands tied behind their backs and their bodies thrown in a shallow grave. I pray that none of us ever have to face anything like that. I pray none of us have to face that kind of violence and war. But if we do, when they do, this is what happens. Vladimir Putin, if he does not repent of his sins, if he is not trusting in the Lord for his salvation, which we have no reason to think with his actions that he is, he will be thrown into the winepress of God's wrath. Hitler, Pol Pot, Stalin, right in the, the, the wine vat of God's wrath, and they will be destroyed. One last passage, and then I'll, I'll dismiss you. Revelation uh, 20 is the, the final battle is completed. And Revelation 21, uh, we see is the coming of the new heaven and the earth. This is the victory. This is the final state of things. And in verse, verse one of 21, it says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And then down in verse five, it says, and he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Just immediately prior, it says, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death. There will be no more pain. There will be no more crying anymore. For the Lord God will be our God and we will be his people. That is the hope of the triumphal entry. That is why the triumphal entry should be celebrated. Not because Jesus wanted to have a party, not because it was important for the first century people to recognize him. Sometimes we get this picture that like all of these people turned around and they were the same ones shouting crucify him a couple, you know, a couple days later. I don't think that's the case. But even if it were, this points to the final victory of Jesus. The one who said, let my people go will ultimately bring about the freedom of his people.